As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me, us. We want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. Welcome back to another episode of The Malcolm Effect. And today I have someone who I consider, I'm sure he will probably not be happy with me saying this, but in many ways, a legend, someone that I've seen watch their videos growing up. And it's an honor and privilege to have him on The Malcolm Effect. Welcome, Professor Norman Finkelstein. How are you? I'm fine. And thank you for having me on the show. Having just spoken to each of you briefly, I'm actually looking forward to our uh, interaction. Likewise, thank you once again. And joining me, I have voices you are familiar with, Christian and Annie. Annie, I know, take it away. Thanks so much, Mama dear. Hi, Professor Norman Fingerstein. It's genuinely an honor to be recording this session with you. So I wanted to start somewhere a bit peculiar for most people who probably will be like encountering this because they're probably used to hearing about your work around the Israel-Palestine conflict, but I was quite curious about your recent work around cancel culture. And I uh, remember stumbling across an interview in which you described some of the literature on contemporary identity politics, but I wanted to start by taking it a bit further back. So there's this whole talk of contemporary cancel culture of the censorious left. And I think part of that story misses out a history with which you probably are quite familiar, and that's the old council politics of the right, especially around questions of Palestine and solidarity with Palestine and radical politics as well on campuses. So I wondered, as a starting point, do you think that the conversation around council culture gets it a bit wrong? The conversation around council culture gets it right and gets it wrong. There are several phenomena going around, going, are, that are happening. Uh, I don't want to be long-winded about these things because I actually do want to hear from you folks. So I'll try to be as brief as possible, and then you can ask me to elaborate on this or that point. Obviously, there's been a cancel culture. I, don't, I can't imagine there's ever been a uh, culture which didn't cancel uh, those who are beyond the poles of respectability, uh, those who fall outside acceptable dissent end up getting canceled. You could say the first or the most, the best known canceled person, first, the earliest was uh, Socrates, and then you move forward. So that's not unusual. So let's leave that aside. Just take it as a given every culture silences in this way or that, those who are beyond the poles of, res- uh, of respectable dissent. Now, if you turn to the United States, obviously there has been a council culture of the right and the center, I wouldn't say it's just the right, of canceling political dissidents in our society on the left. So you take the case of Eugene Debs. He was the first great socialist leader of the 20th century in the United States. He was jailed during World War I. You take people like the anarchists, Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman, 
uh, they were deported at the time of World War One. They were deported to Soviet Russia, and there were what were called back then the Red Scares, which was basically in this way or that, silencing leftist critics of the United States. After World War II, you had a second kind of Red Scare, which was called McCarthyism, and that too was directed at the political left. Uh, the The most notorious victims of that particular Red Scare were uh, W.E.B. Du Bois and uh, Paul Robeson. So this cancel culture, which targets political dissidents mostly, I can't say entirely, but certainly overwhelmingly on the left, has a long pedigree, a long history. Now, on the left itself, you could say there was always a cancel culture Namely, there was a lot of dogmatism on the left, and those who descended from the party line, whichever it was, was the object of vitriol, the object of some kind of, you might call it, cancellation. So you can't really say leftist organizations like the Communist Party were particularly tolerant of dissent. So what distinguishes that kind of intolerance from the intolerance I just mentioned, the intolerance of dissenters on the left by various government bodies? The obvious difference is power. How many people could the the Communist Party of the United States blacklist? And what are the real life repercussions of that kind of blacklisting? pretty much close to zero, because these organizations, yes, they were very dogmatic. Yes, they cast all sorts of aspersions, those who didn't adhere to their party line. But no, it didn't have any real consequences. Whereas if you were blacklisted by McCarthy, uh, you ended up deprived of work, deprived of livelihood, uh, visited by the FBI, hounded by government agencies, uh, it was a real price. Mr. Dr. Du Bois, who had a lot of self-regard and self-esteem, he wouldn't let anybody call him anything other than Dr. Du Bois. Uh, At a pretty ripe old age in his early 80s, he finds himself handcuffed and taken to the courthouse. Well, you can imagine for Dr. Du Bois, that was a man of extreme dignity and pride. It must have been a mortifying experience. And similarly, in the case of Robeson, his income in 1949, I think, was $200,000 a year. In 1950, it plummeted to $6,000 a year. And every concert hall, every meeting place was closed to him. Uh, He used to, and I should say in the case of both of them, uh, they also were ostracized by their erstwhile friends. Du Bois, in his last autobiography, at the very end, he has some very sad chapters about how everybody, almost down to the last person, deserted him when he was being hounded by McCarthy. 
and it makes for a very painful reading. Paul Robeson used to sing a song uh, when something like this, you'll excuse my horrendous voice. I met my brother the other day. I gave him my right hand. And as soon as ever my back was turned, he scandalized my name. Do you call that a brother? No, no. You call that a brother? No, no. Scandalize my name. And what does that mean concretely? It means, for example, Paul Robeson was one of the individuals who struggled very hard to get Jackie Robinson into baseball, into the, uh, the hitherto segregated white leagues. And then during the McCarthy era, Robinson was called up to denounce Robeson, and he did as he was called upon to do. And if you're interested and doesn't make for, it makes for interesting viewing, just Google Jackie Robinson, Jackie Robinson, Paul Robeson, McCarthy hearings, and you'll see Robinson testifying. He's obviously internally very conflicted by what he's doing. His wife is sitting in a corner on a chair, obviously not happy with the situation. But I met my brother the other day, I gave him my right hand, and as soon as ever my back was turned, Jackie scandalized my name. Uh, so that's what it meant. What's different now, and I'm going to end it there, is the cancel culture politics now possesses real institutional power. That is to say, it is supported by the Democratic Party. It's supported by many liberal institutions. It's supported by woke periodicals like the New York Times, Atlantic, The New Yorker. So the um, cancel culture culture now differs from the Communist Party era or later in my time, the PC the politically correct era, uh, there was, yeah, there was a lot of censorious attitude by people on the left and liberal sectors. But PC, political correctness, it was a very marginal phenomenon. It exercised no real power. It was at the margins of the universities. That was about it. But now, the the uh, identity politics, the cancel culture, they are not marginal. They are being used, exploited, and promoted by the Democratic Party. Absolutely. Absolutely. Apologies, my little one is just waking up, so you may hear some guys like in the background. So I'm particularly interested in the shift that you describe in which cancel culture comes to achieve a degree of institutional backing Mm -hmm. and specifically the languaging right around this question of political correctness. You know, the Democratic Party is by no means innocent of activity in the Red Scare. And we have this longer history, which often gets overlooked, not just of the activities of the 20th century in terms of the destruction, essentially, of the capacity of radical left organizing in America. But then you have that followed up by 
the Patriot Act in the early 2000s and the clamping down on what is considered to be anti-patriotic or anti-nationalistic speech framed within the language of a response to a threat of terror. And then following on from that even further, you have this in the context of what I would say is far too understudied, the emergence of languaging around hate crime and this unhappy coupling or marriage between the old radical identity politics and the state in which the state becomes the arbiter of what is just, obviously, and what is what is legitimate use of power. And so I guess I, I want to push a little bit further in terms of thinking about the... Um, my apologies. I want to push a little bit further in terms of thinking about this shift that happens in recent years and posit the argument that there's actually a really strong degree of continuity, right, between the Red Scare, and the role that contemporary cancel culture has played in crowding out radical critique of identity politics. So it's working in one direction. People are very well aware of it because it's well publicized and the old right have a lot of institutional power to be able to shout about being censored from the front pages of magazines and stuff like that. But then also how some of the victims of this that haven't been as publicized are academics who face more difficult conditions getting tenure, who are putting radical arguments and trying to talk more explicitly and concretely about class politics. And I remember seeing you kind of draw this inference when you talk about the mobilization of identity politics in the campaign that Hillary Clinton ran against Bernie Sanders, in which somebody who is talking about class politics or politics, which is disproportionately beneficial to all of the identity categories that we might consider to be marginalized, but because he's not using this correct languaging, it's possible for a neoliberal candidate who's backing policy, which would disproportionately harm all the same groups, to frame themselves as the true champions of of Black politics, of women's politics. And just to add to that as well, what you were saying, I guess I've seen Professor Finkelstein speak about this in a few videos as well, where a truly class analysis, class politics kind of coalesced around Bernie Sanders' campaign. But the likes of Hillary Clinton was allowed to kind of, because, and call Bernie or say, oh, Bernie doesn't speak about race, for example, or Bernie doesn't consider women's issues, for example. So I think this kind of speaks to what Professor Finkelstein has been talking about. And I think anyone wants to unpack that further, if that makes sense as a question. Well, let me just begin by saying the Patriot Act and those various legislative initiatives Uh, They came, at least they originated at the right end of the political spectrum, the conservative Republicans, people like Bush, Cheney, and Rumsfeld, though there were very few Democrats who were ready to dissent from that policy. In the case now uh, of the identity politics, I think that the Democratic Party is relying less on legislative repression than on material rewards for those who follow the party line. So you correctly stated, when I say you, I'm referring to Annie, you correctly stated that the Patriot Act at least was justified as part of the war on terror. And it was designed clearly both to whip up a hysteria and to silence dissent. Now, 
let's make a comparison. Let's look at the war in Ukraine. In the case of the war in Ukraine, you really didn't need a Patriot Act to silence any dissent. The entire Democratic Party, down to the last person in Congress, that is to say, including every member of what's called the squad, including Bernie Sanders, not one of them has uttered a single word of dissent on what's happening in the Ukraine. A hundred billion dollars, which is not a small sum of money, having been transferred there with virtually no oversight. A war which might climax any day in a nuclear Armageddon has not been subject to any congressional hearings. Nothing. Nothing. So it seems to me the same effect has been achieved by the Democratic Party through public pressures as was achieved by the Patriot Act through legislative measures. Now, I don't claim at all, I am the last person on God's earth to claim any knowledge of Twitter. I've never been on Twitter. I, I honestly, I truly don't know what it is. <laughs> but there has been all of this talk about what's called the Twitter files, in which it said, I can't judge because I'm simply ignorant of the matter, in which it says there was a lot of government pressure exerted on private social media outlets like Facebook, Twitter, and so forth in order to suppress dissent. I can't comment on that, but I think to my, my view is that the more sinister and the more pernicious kinds of pressure have come from the desire by normal, normally what one might expect to be dissenters following the party line because of the rewards, that are the material rewards that are at the end of the rainbow. So AOC, it's pretty obvious, I think, that when she had her congressional breakthrough and she was talking the talk, Nancy Pelosi told everybody around her, don't worry, I'll take care of her. I'll handle her. And I'm sure at some point they were going to the same pedicure, the same manicure, the same beautician. They were shopping together and Nancy Pelosi was whispering in AOC's ears, just do what I tell you and you'll be Speaker of the House also. Those are things that in the normal course, in the normal scheme of things, those are temptations which are very, very hard to resist. It's only if you belong to an organization that holds you accountable that pressure is exerted on the other side to keep you in line and to keep your ego in line and to keep your desire for fame and fortune in line. But when there's no organization, 
it's very, very hard to resist those temptations. And before you know it, uh, AOC is in the cover of GQ. Ibram X. Kendi gets $10 million from the ex-CEO of, of Twitter, uh, Jack Dorsey. The Black Lives Matter so-called leaders are raking in millions of dollars. I saw yesterday, I don't know how much you can trust the web, but it says that Patrice Cullors, whose gray matter could easily fit in a thimble with a lot of space left over, uh, she's worth now $6 million. She bought four homes in one year. And Jeff Bezos gave Obama $100 million. He gave Van Jones $100 million. Dorsey, excuse me, Ibram X. Kendi gets $30,000 now for speaking for one and a half hours, $30,000. I'm not begging for pity, far from it, but I just did my IRS statement and my net income last year was $35,000. So my income for one year is what Kendi gets for one and a half hours. Nicole Hannah-Jones, the 1619 Project, she got last year just in speaking fees at universities, just in speaking fees at universities, she got a minimum of $1 million. One university gave her, just one university, gave her for, I think, two days, two days, $100,000. So this identity politics and towing the party line, it's very lucrative. It's a very lucrative business and in my opinion, maybe it's what you would call vulgar Marxism, but in my opinion, that explains a lot. Rare, rare, rare is the person who bites the hand that feeds him or her. That's a very rare breed. It was striking, incidentally, that just on another note, so as you know, Marianne Williamson announced her candidacy for the Democratic Party primary. And I'm not a big Marianne Williamson fan, but she's striking some notes, which I think are, it's good that they're being aired. She basically has appropriated Bernie Sanders' class struggle platform as her own. So, Here's the point. As you know, the most woke program on television now is The View. It's hyper-woke. And there are two black women on The View, Whoopi Goldberg, and there's another black woman. She's a lawyer. I can't remember her name right now. And who do you think, who do you think denounced Marianne Williamson? Who do you think? It was them two. The hyper, hyper-woke Whoopi Goldberg, whose job it was in 2020 to attack Bernie 
you will recall she said on the view, man, you're getting out of this race already. And now she and the other woman, and they purposely choose black women because then it's hard to answer them without being accused of racism. So the two black women now are denouncing Marianne Williamson because Biden doesn't want a primary challenge and he doesn't want to be forced into a debate. And that, in my opinion, is on a daily level how identity politics works. It's designed, one, it's a, it's a direct route to a lot of money, a lot of money. And B, it's the Democratic Party's quid pro quo. If you take our money, then you have to be there when people like Bernie Sanders or Marianne Williamson, or if there is a strike at Amazon, you can be pretty sure after Obama took $100 million from Jeff Bezos, you could be pretty sure which side he'll be on. I guess my follow-up question then is what then, you know, you've clearly laid out that there's, you know, a material interest that drives, you know, keeping particular individuals within a set party line, right? But I guess what then falls, what is the, the, the measure of what is acceptable or unacceptable with regards to this party line? Because you know, there's a great diversity of thought, even within academia, of, of that people can go, people can say, but there are obviously clear boundaries that get stepped. And, and one of the, I think one of those examples is, is Palestine, right? Which I'm sure you yourself are, are, are very familiar with. Like, I remember, you know, being a student and part of, to talk about the, coercive and and authoritative power this institutional power in silencing certain voices i remember specifically canary mission uh, being one of those things that was silencing a great deal of students trying to speak out against the terror that israel brings down upon palestinians and even uh, various academics uh you know losing their jobs or being denied tenure uh, for speaking out against israel and so i guess i asked like there's clearly a material interest to keep people in line with what is deemed acceptable, but what then is deemed acceptable or unacceptable? Is there a centrality of uh, American militarism that that is included in in what is being attempted to be preserved, right? I guess, yeah, yeah. Well, unfortunately, that question has a lot of nuances and subtleties and to try to parse all of them would be probably difficult for me, and I'm going to miss some things. So I'll just try to give you a succinct reply. The question of Palestine has become complicated by the fact that whereas the Democratic Party elite retains its allegiances to Israel, both because of large, large Jewish donors to the party who are loyal to Israel, and also because Israel still remains a major outpost of U.S. power in the Middle East. So between the Jewish donor base of the Democratic Party 
and the strategic interest of Israel to U.S. power, there is a lot of resistance to criticizing Israel. On the other hand, the base of the Democratic Party, its demographic base, is turning significantly against Israel. The polls are showing now, my memory serves, the most recent polls show a majority of Democrats are highly critical of Israel, and it's verging, it's verging on Democrats being more sympathetic to the Palestinians than to Israel. So you have an unusual dynamic there between the sentiment of the base and the sentiment of the Democratic Party leadership and elite. Now, what are the limits of criticism? Well, I think you could see the limits at play right before your eyes. I mentioned already there's a war in Ukraine. It's a U.S. war. It's Ukrainians who are dying. It's Ukraine that's being destroyed. But it's the U.S. that presides over and is effectively waging the war. There has not been, not only has there not been criticism, well, let's begin. There hasn't been condemnation, although the U.S. methodically, over a protracted period of time, provoked Russia. The U.S. has, since the war, methodically and systematically sabotage any negotiated settlement of the war, notwithstanding those indisputable and irrefutable facts, there has not been within the Democratic Party any condemnation of the war, any criticism of the war. There hasn't even been a call just to have congressional hearings on the war. It's complete lockstep support for this criminal, in my opinion, this criminal war. Now, let's turn to the next item on the war agenda of the Biden-Blinken administration. It's quite clear that the United States is preparing the ground for a war against China, a war which it seems to me cannot but have a very unhappy ending in which all of humanity will look like the four blank screens I'm now staring at on this monitor, which is to say the, the termination of humanity. It's not, it doesn't take a knowledge of rocket science to make sense of the current U.S. posture to prepare the ground for a war with China. Has there been any criticism in the Democratic Party? Has there been any dissent? Has there been any call for hearings? So I would say that the limit on what's permissible when it comes to foreign policy are near zero now, are near zero now. 
Was there even a call in by the Democrats in Congress to call to have hearings on Nord Stream 2? Who blew it up? What role, if any, did the United States pay, play? Nothing. Nothing. It's a tragedy to have to say there's more dissent in the Republican Party right now on U.S. foreign policy, military, murderous military wars than there is in the Democratic Party. But that's a fact. That's a fact. And it doesn't take great insight to figure out why is the squad silent. They don't know that there's maybe something awry in this war in the Ukraine. They don't know that. Of course they know it. But they're all careerists. And they know one peep of dissent and you're finished. You remember how Barack Obama got Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar to drop out of the Democratic primary after Bernie lost South Carolina? All he has to do is pick up the phone and tell Pete, listen, Pete, if you don't drop out now, you have no future in the party. He dropped out and he was made Secretary of Transportation. That's how the system works. You remember that pathetic fake AOC when the vote came up on whether the United States should finance, subsidize what was called Israel's anti-missile defense system, Iron Dome, and she was going to vote no, not to finance. And then you have a scene of her having a vehement argument with Nancy Pelosi. And you know what Nancy Pelosi is telling her. Don't you understand if you vote no, you have no future in the party? Don't you understand? I told you, just listen to me. And you'll be the next Speaker of the House. Just listen to me. Don't you understand? If you vote no, none of the Jewish donors are going to support you. And what did she do? She cast, uh, like, abstention. She abstained. And then she started to cry and cry. And we're all supposed to feel sorry for AOC because she's crying. AOC, I don't get it. I thought you ran on, we women are not victims. We're strong Latin, Latin X, whatever that means. We're strong Latin X women. So if you're not victims and you're a strong Latin X woman, then why this bullshit crying? Why this bullshit crying? Because they're all such fakes. It's, you know, that's the price. That's the price of power. So I want to have a go at a thread which seems to tie all of these instances together. And that is this concept of center ground, a militant center ground, which is claiming a monopoly, not a force of violence, but a a monopoly of injury in the emerging moral economy, right? Or quite established moral economy. So on the one hand, you have these identity categories, which seem to be themselves indicative of a whole series of traumas. So I'm, you haven't seen me yet, Norman, but I'm a black woman. And just by virtue of looking at me, the average person is to understand that there are a whole series of traumas associated with my blackness. And by virtue of that, I am powerless and therefore morally upright. And anything I say should be treated with a greater degree of uh, credibility. This is given language through the misuse of the concept of lived experience. But also in addition to this, right? 
I remember during the referendum in Britain around the question of Brexit, how bizarre it was for me to see people drape themselves in the flag of the EU, which is ostensibly supposed to be, to them, an anti-racist institution, yet is responsible for funding the Libyan Coast Guard and for facilitating the drowning of migrants off the coast of the Mediterranean at, of, of migrants in their thousands, right? And I just could not square this image of the EU as an anti-racist institution with the perception that people had Oh, this perception that people had of the EU as an anti-racist institution with the reality that Fortress Europe has cost and continues to cost the lives of thousands of black and brown people every year. But central to that is the mobilisation of a particular kind of injury, right? The capacity to have exclusive rights to speak for groups. So the EU is a good thing because it stops us, it stops the hard right within our states from attacking as much as they want to the black people who have citizenship, who've already been granted admission in America. War against black and brown people, specifically people, people in the global south nonetheless, is justified because it protects the borders of America and by extension protects the black and brown populations within America who have citizenship already. And I think Angela Davis writes about this concept of multicultural imperialism, which I think might be quite instructive here. And I, I think about comparisons that I've been kind of working with, and I've done some sessions talking about this, and also done quite a bit of reading around this comparison that's constantly made between two forms of injury, which seem to structure the global like moral economy at the moment. So um, one is the Holocaust, two is the slave trade, right? And how, especially on questions of mobilization of support for Zionism and for the, Israel, the, the project of Israel, but also um, contemporarily, um, the mobilization of the black bourgeoisie in America mm-hmm. of the slave trade, particularly given voice at the moment through the um, American descendants of slaves movement, which is a movement for reparations, but also a movement for limiting the immigration rights of Africans in America <laughs> on the basis that Africans sold African-Americans into slavery. And so I wondered what your thoughts were, um, kind of tying this all together on the capacity and persuasiveness, right? Um, new it seems, persuasiveness of the claim to moral good and the claim to victimhood in terms of militating people against certain forms of speech, in terms of regulating speech, like you said, without the need for a Patriot Act, whereas historically the state needed to intervene. It seems we seem to have developed a moral economy in which certain voices articulating mythological histories which have come to be held very true and when I say mythological histories what I mean is like particular renderings of history which give priority to groups within groups to speak on behalf of the whole group and how that has impacted the space for political discourse you know I think everybody in this room well I definitely can say so myself have been a victim of (laughs) cancel culture and typically my arguments tend to come from the, the left and so I'm curious about what it is about this centrist framing or rendering of identity politics, um, especially in regards to injury, that enables that resistance, not just to the hard right, but also to to radical politics as well. Okay. Obviously, your question has many facets. I'll focus on those areas where I feel I have a certain competence. So let's take the two uh, emblematic examples you gave of the political mobilization uh, of identity politics in the field or the discipline 
uh, of history, namely the Nazi Holocaust, and now concurrently the African slave trade. So, in the case of the Nazi Holocaust, I'm not going to review now what I've written on or already wrote about 20 years ago, that the, the uh, discovery of the Nazi Holocaust, if you want to put it that way, the discovery of the Nazi Holocaust had very clear political aims. Number one, it was designed to immunize Israel from criticism by making the claim that nobody in the history of humanity ever suffered the way Jews suffered during the Nazi Holocaust, and therefore the ordinary moral standards and legal standards uh, shouldn't be applied to Israel because of its unique suffering, which is an, another a simple way of saying that is because the suffering of Jews has been unique, then Jews are entitled to a unique standard. Jews here, meaning Israel, should be subject to a unique standard when uh, scrutinizing its human rights record or a uniquely lack standard because of its unique suffering. There was also a financial aspect to it, but I'm not going to go into that now because it's passé. This racket, this extortion racket, which was called Holocaust Reparations for Needy Holocaust Victims. That was a complete and total fraud. I documented extensively in what I wrote on the subject, the Holocaust industry, but that should not detain us now because it's basically, not entirely, but it's basically history now. Let's now turn to the African slave trade. Now, all three of you are probably more, com more competent as scholars than myself to speak on the subject. However, the first major scholarly study of the, of the African slave trade was by W.E.B. Du Bois. It was his doctoral dissertation, and incidentally, it was the first volume in the Harvard Historical Studies series. So that's a pretty impressive achievement by Du Bois. Uh, he was the first black PhD from Harvard, and he also, his dissertation was the first the first entry in the Harvard Historical Studies series. I think you will all agree, we can, of course, we're free to disagree. I think you'll all agree there has been no dearth, no lack of scholarship on the slave trade since the days of W.E.B. Du Bois in, at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, it's a huge field. I myself have several quite large volumes on it, so it can hardly be said that this has been a neglected area of study. If you were to ask me the effects of, say, European colonialism in Africa, starting with the Belgium Congo, then I would say to you, of course, of course, <laughs> there's practically been no scholarship on that. But on the slave trade, I don't think it's accurate to say that there is this huge 
chasm that needs to be filled. It's a thriving area of academic research and scholarship. So what accounts for this attention being paid to it? And here, to my view, which you could say is vulgar Marxism, I always get suspicious when rich white people suddenly take an interest in a subject having to do with, say, race. So, yes, there had been all along, for a large period of time, there had been what you might call a cottage industry speaking to the subject of black reparations. I go back far enough to remember when James Foreman was at Riverside Church, I think it was, demanding black reparations. I remember when Randall Robinson, the head of an organization called Trans Africa, he wrote a book about reparations for slavery. But these were, you might call, pretty marginal phenomena. When did it suddenly become a front burner issue? It's when Atlantic Magazine published an article by Ta-Nehisi Coates. So I have to ask myself, since when did Atlantic Magazine suddenly become so concerned about black reparations? That strikes me as kind of odd. And then Nicole Hannah-Jones, who's barely literate, writes an article for the New York Times Magazine on black reparations. And then a significant number of books, full volumes, are published on black reparations. And you have to ask yourself, what's going on here? You know, and I know, There isn't a snowball's chance in hell that a black reparations bill is going to get through Congress. That is what we call DOA, dead on arrival. So why this sudden interest in the slave trade and black reparations? I think two things. Number one, it was skillfully used by Ta-Nehisi Coates to delegitimize Bernie's class struggle platform with Ta-Nehisi Coates attacking Bernie for being weak on the reparations question. And then you remember in the 2020 campaign, he gave his quiet, subtle, tacit endorsement to Elizabeth Warren because she was good on the reparations question. And this whole reparations issue is a giant distraction where you get to talk at Martha's Vineyard in your soirees about nothing that has anything to do with the real world. It's the same thing, if you'll forgive me for saying so, it's the same thing as this Angela Davis, Gina Dent act called prison abolitionism. Is there anything whatsoever on the political agenda in the here and now, be it this week, this month, this year, this decade, that bears in the slightest 
in the most remote degree on the prospect of abolishing prisons. But all these white folks at these elite universities, go, go, go to the web and Google Angela Davis, Gina Dent, University of Pennsylvania, and you'll see the president of University of Pennsylvania. Oh, her name just slipped my mind. It'll come to me. She's no longer the president. She's now the U.S. ambassador to Germany. Amy, 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 Amy Gutman. And she is so thrilled and so excited. I knew Amy Gutman in Princeton. She's uh, the dullest, the most dullest dishwater liberal. And she's so thrilled and so excited to be introducing Angela and Gina Dent, and they're going to have a conversation about reparation, about prison abolitionism. So everybody can feel so radical and so down with the hood and its political consequences, its political repercussions, its political potential, flat zero. It's also contemptible, prison abolitionism. Yeah, that's, that's right on the front burner right now. We're going to let 4 million black people out of jail. Yeah, that's very, very possible, very probable. Here's the thing, right? So I recognize and I agree that much of the discussion that happens at a national level has very little to do with anything and that there are both individuals and organizations who have set themselves up to essentially play the role that uh, the collaborators played during colonization as a, a class to translate the interests of the, the natives or the, the, the black ghetto to political class. That being said, I think that unlike with the question of reparations, there is a serious conversation to be had but about the space between the national conversation around prison abolition versus the work that's happening at a local level. And I've had this conversation with many people because this question of prison abolition, it doesn't just sort of come out of nowhere. It's got a long history in the Black radical struggle, but it's framed at a national level, you know, the chance that we remember defund the police and all of that kind of stuff as simply an act of destruction. Whereas if you look at the radical roots of, black, of abolition politics, it's the question of how, as a society, do we take collective responsibility for how harm is produced, but also how do we prevent harm from happening before it actually happens? The prison can only respond to a harm that's already happened. So how do we generate more productive and a responsive kind of policy to create or foster more cohesive communities? And I think the prevalence of that at a local level, especially as it emerged through the Black Lives Matter movement, and I'm not pegging that to the National Organization of Black Lives Matter, but the chapters that are organizing broadly independently of the national organization, it comes out of, one, the decimation of community in the, in, in the, in the wake of neoliberalism and this, this even the sense of cohesiveness, but also, two, it comes out of the decimation of social services to many communities, right? We know that in communities which are impoverished, which are underserved, crime is an indicator of that or a consequence of that, right? And I think that people are trying to respond to that by recognising the dramatic shift that has happened in terms of allocation of funds by states from social services and mental health services 
into um, into not just prisons, but also into policing. Police in America are incredibly militarized. There is no reason why any police force in any democratic country should have tanks that they can pull out in response to anti-racist protests. But all of that gets muddled up because we have this class, and I, I am really interested after Christian sort of takes us on, I think, what it will be a very fruitful detour. I'm really interested in understanding how this class, political class, this black bourgeois political class has consolidated itself and been able to occupy so much of the conversation such that the work that's happening at a grassroots level becomes completely obscure and and invisible to people. But that's what I would say on the prison abolition. On reparations, I think that, yeah, it's, it's dead on arrival and also it's increasingly effectively being used as a mode of advancing the interests of the Republican Party as it pertains I to the question. I with that. I have on several occasions spent a night in jail. I can tell you, speaking as a veteran of those nights in jail, it's a horrible, horrible experience. So for those who spend weeks, months, years in jail, my heart goes out to them. God only knows how they managed to survive and come out semi-whole from those experiences. And of course, they have to be addressed. And of course, there are people who are trying to address them from having programs in place so kids don't end up in jail to having legal representation so that kids don't have to plea bargain and end up in jail. And then finally, if they do end up in jail, to make it as humane an experience as is possible when you cage a human being behind bars. So of course, what you're saying is correct. But I have to wonder, why are all these rich white people turning out to hear Angela talk about prison abolitionism? And why do they get so excited about it? And I can't help but think it's because the way it's being framed like the black reparations, it's being framed in a manner such that it is wholly, totally, completely non-political. It has no repercussions and ramifications. Whereas I think you would agree that when Bernie was talking about a radical redistribution of wealth, number one, that had real political ramifications for the wealthy 1% or wealthy 20%, however you calculate it. And two, when Bernie talked about the jobs program, investing in infrastructure, investing in schools, I think you would agree that if you want to keep large numbers of black young black men out of jail, giving them a chance with a job, giving them a chance with a solid education, all those things, it won't solve the problem, but certainly it would go very far. How far? We can differ on how far, but it does strike me as a curiosity that when there was a practical program being promoted in order to impact on the real lives of real people such that they won't end up in that hellhole called jail, that all these people 
who claim to be so concerned about prison abolitionism when it came to a program which probably would have kept a lot of young people out of jail if that program was pushed through Congress, a large public works program, a large jobs program, an improvement in our public schools, bringing back what I had when I was growing up, uh, bands in school, orchestras in school, theater productions in school. We all had that when I was growing up, giving these young people a chance. All of these prison abolitionists and black reparationists, they all turned like a vengeance on Bernie. That tells me a lot. Yeah, you know, I think I think that question of why then is a certain strand or a certain certain package of of prison abolition digestible in in the national conversation and especially amongst wealthy white people kind of gets back at like a a previous question I had earlier which was, you know, what is in what is determined to be in the realm of what is acceptable in discourse or acceptable with in proximity to a party line and what is deemed unacceptable. Right. And I think, I think it, we have a very clear answer to that question. Right. right. A black vice a black female vice president is acceptable. A black female Supreme Court justice is acceptable. A black female lesbian press secretary is acceptable. Gavin Newsom in California just proclaimed yesterday he's going to nominate a black woman senator. That's acceptable. And we know without any question, without any doubt, what's not acceptable. What's not acceptable? Number one, a radical redistribution of wealth. And number two, criticism of U.S. foreign policy. Those are the two things that are not touchable. Right. Yeah, no, case in point. And I guess I, I do want to, again, you know, pivot to this, to another section and what I want to get at is when Andy brought this up earlier, you know, there was a question of the role of morality in politics. And this has me really interested in speaking with you about your work on Gandhi, because you write about Gandhi's political strategy of nonviolence. And this is particularly interesting to me because when I was in school, I took a graduate seminar on Martin Luther King Jr. and his work and his legacy was was very influenced by the philosophies of Gandhi and the, and the political, I guess, the political uh, work of Gandhi. And what gets me about the, the stra- political strategy of nonviolence is that, you know, as you have said, right, Gandhi believes that consciousness is already within people, mm-hmm. right? That people already understand what is unjust. People already understand what is wrong. Now, the problem then becomes how do we move people to action? And moving people to action can be done by people witnessing, you know, intense suffering. That that can be a, a call to action. But and and for King, morality was bound up in this. And I believe also for Gandhi, there's a spiritual aspect to this nonviolence. There's a moral aspect to this nonviolence. There's a, something to be said about preserving one's humanity through nonviolence. But I guess the question then becomes that for King in the civil rights movement, it was about making particular moral appeals. It is about showing one's actual moral superiority. So then is morality a tool to be weaponized through the political strategy of nonviolence? And is morality the tool that we should be weaponizing 
on the political landscape? Or are there alternatives to weaponizing morality and mobilizing a mass base? Well, first of all, Mr. Christian, you got everything that I wrote about exactly right. So I have to say that's pretty good because you distilled the essence of what I wrote on the subject and you distilled it, not only did you distill it, but you distilled it accurately. Uh, So I think that's pretty darn good. I would say your question is a very difficult one for me to answer. I did in the book that I just wrote, uh, there's a very long section, probably running to 10 or 15 pages, in which I discussed Martin Luther King's strategy of nonviolence, and I concretized, in the case of the civil rights movement, exactly what you talked about as general propositions. So if I might, I and I don't like to use these occasions to promote anything, it feels like it's commodifying thought, which I'm not, I'm not uh, prone to, and in fact I find repellent. But for those of you who are interested in the subject that Christian just spoke about, uh, I have a long section of my book in this chapter on Ibram X. Kendi, uh, in which I address precisely those questions. If you write me afterwards, Mr. Christian Joseph, I'll send you a PDF and I'll direct you to the relevant pages. Meanwhile, it's approaching 7.30 and I have to prepare class where I'm teaching. So I wanna give Mr. Mamadou an opportunity to ask the question he's been holding back on and he's figured out his exit strategy. He's gonna ask me, (laughs) Professor Finkelstein, is it or is it not true that you're a self-hating Jew? I would never ask such a question. I would never <laughs> I would never ask such a question. But thank you so much for your time. I guess just my exit question in thinking about all topics we've been speaking about. In your conversation with Barbara and Robin, you mentioned the Communist Party had the question, the Negro question. We had the question, the woman question. And today with your understanding of what seems to be identity politics in the mainstream is not doing that work. But in thinking about the attacks that comes to those, you know, you've said you're a vulgar Marxist Mm -hmm. several times on this podcast. People speak about those who are vulgar materialists don't pay attention to question of race and gender. Mm -hmm. So, but given the fact that the Communist Party were very had specific lines and we had debates, you know, we know how Lenin lended support and invited African-American to Soviet Union to speak about the black experience. We know that the Soviet Union lended support to what would be seen as an internal colony for black people in the South. So given that we have this tradition of of left, radical left organizing in speaking to the different various identities, how can we reclaim that today then? I think the, uh, these questions have not been resolved and they are grounds for legitimate debate. So I would be the last to dismiss the relevance of those questions. I would say, just a couple of things. Number one, I thought that Bernie Sanders' platform was the way to go forward, which is he said, everybody will benefit from the platform, or I should say the 99%, or realistically speaking, the 80% of those who are the have-nots will benefit from my platform. 
However, those who are suffering the most will benefit the most. So if you're putting forth a jobs program, then that segment of society which has the highest level of unemployment will benefit the most from a jobs program. If you put forth Medicare for all, that segment of society which has the least medical coverage will benefit the most. So the platform was basically everybody gains, the Bernie platform, everybody gains. However, black people, other oppressed minorities, they will gain more. And I think that was the right way to go. Number two, as I said on that program with Barbara Smith and Robin D.G. Kelly, as I said in the program, the difference between the approach of the left to identity politics and the current version of identity politics is that the left has always seen class as the fundamental issue, but race, sexual orientation, uh, sex, your actual sex, woman, as being additional to the class question. The distinctive feature of identity politics is it kept the identity but lopped off the class. When you read Ta-Nehisi Coates, Ibram X. Kendi, Robin DiAngelo, Kimberly Crenshaw, there's like a fleeting, a fleeting fragment on class. They just want to talk about identity. In particular, they want to talk about the disparity between the proportion of the population that a particular demographic represents in general and the proportion of the 1% who represent that demographic. In other words, they want more blacks, more women, more lesbians, more gay people, more trans people in the ruling class. That's their only concern. They want more representation. They want proportional representation of minorities, identity groups, in the ruling class. That's the only aspect of class they care about. Whereas historically, as you know, the left has concerned itself not with proportional representation of various identities in the ruling class. The left has focused on a radical redistribution of wealth to all of the have-not. So as a succinct formulation, I, what's called identity politics is identity politics, but lopping off class. And I think I will end it there. Thank you so much for your time, Professor. It's been a truly generative conversation. <laughs> I'll leave it there. Take care.